Turn, if you would, back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And as you're turning there, let me make this disclaimer. And that is that I found particularly this message one that was very hard uh, to prepare for in, in study and in prayer. Uh, just to formulate my thoughts uh, on, this, on this passage and then to, to be very precise in what the Word is teaching us. There are some phrases in this text, as we will see, that are very powerful uh, and could, could very easily be perceived as perhaps harsh, but yet they are in the Word of God. And though my flesh might wish that they weren't, there they are, right in front of me. And if I'm going to deal honestly with the text, I must, I must not skip over them or pretend that they're not there. Uh, there are some phrases that, if we are not careful, we could do away with them altogether. Or we could very easily misinterpret them to mean something that they don't mean and quickly find ourselves in occultism. I don't want to do either of those two things. So I ask for your prayers and your patience and your grace this morning as we look at this text together. I, I'm nowhere near... Uh, infallible <laughs> just ask my wife uh, but I want to be faithful to the text to what is written for us last week we considered the first eight verses and this week we'll consider verses 9 through 13 as we finish out we finish out this this text I want us to consider this morning a brother falsely so called a brother falsely so called first Corinthians chapter 5 beginning in verse 9. These are the words of God. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner? With such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to them, or to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. One of the most sad and painful realities that we as believers must reckon with is that not everyone who claims to belong to Jesus Christ truly belongs to Jesus Christ. There always have been and there always will be false converts that creep in unawares and blend in with the visible saints of God. Those who profess with their mouth that they know Christ, yet Christ has never taken up residence in their heart. False converts are most abundant in environments where two things have occurred. Number one, where the gospel has been watered down. And number two, where the gospel has been cheapened. Watered down in the sense that the gospel is preached as nothing more than a one-time intellectual decision instead of the soul-changing, life-giving, heart-transforming power of God unto salvation. Many false converts 
are so because they do not understand the radical change that occurs when the gospel enters into the hearts of a sinner. And they are unaware of the absence of that change within them. Or perhaps the gospel is cheapened in the sense that the gospel is preached as something that won't cost you anything. Much is said about how Jesus loves everyone and invites everyone, and it's true that he, he does to an extent, but very little is mentioned about Christ's command to take up your cross daily and follow him. Friends, the gospel is free, but the gospel is not cheap. And we have produced a generation of false converts because we have sold them a form of world-pleasing, culturally acceptable, man-approved Christianity that doesn't cost them anything. We have failed to tell them that true Christians are often hated by the world. We have failed to, to tell them that they must forsake all if they are to follow Christ. We have failed to tell them that they must cease entirely from relying on themselves. Instead, we have preached unto them a gospel that can be easily added on to their worldliness. We have preached unto them a gospel that demands very little from them. We have preached unto them a gospel that the lost culture around them approves of, that tells them they can go on living as if they had never become a Christian and yet have Christianity too. And in so doing, we have preached unto them a gospel that is not the gospel at all. And we have given them a false sense of assurance. Well, even in Paul's day, you must understand the gospel came with great costs. That to profess faith in the gospel oftentimes meant your head coming off by a Roman sword. To belong to a church was to throw yourself and your societal reputation in the trash. Yet even then there were false converts. Paul is dealing with a false convert in chapter 5. Well, how much more do we today deal with false converts who are actually lost in a society when the same threats are non-existent. There's no one threatening us with a sword to come here this morning. Uh, there's no one keeping tabs of who is serving Christ and who is not. The government, that is, I'm, I'm speaking of. It's fairly easy to be a Christian in 2022. Perhaps a bit of persecution would solve many of the problems with false converts. And it would separate those who are real and those who are false. But nevertheless, the purpose of this message and the purpose of this text before us is not to prove that there are false converts, but rather to instruct us on how we are to deal with them once they have manifested themselves. How are we to interact with those that live a life that is in stark contradiction to what they profess to believe. What is the church's responsibility toward a member who is living in persistent and unrepentant sin? Now, I already gave you the disclaimer that this was a hard text for me to wrap my mind around. And I think that one of the reasons why it's difficult for all of us is because we all know people like this. And we love people like this. They're, they're in our family. They're, they're on the job site. They, they profess Christianity. They, you, you, you talk to them about the Lord and they sit there and they amen you and they're encouraged, so to speak. 
but you know that they live a life that is not consistent at all with the God they claim to serve. And it can be very difficult for us when we then come across a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we're thinking of this individual that we love and we care for and we want to ask God, really? Is, is it that serious? And it's even more so painful and difficult when these false converts are not just individuals we know that profess Christ, but when they are fellow church members. When there's someone that you saw them get baptized, you heard their testimony, you, you, you saw what you, what you thought was fruit in their lives, and at first you, you saw this pattern of sin uh, enter in, and you thought, well, maybe they're just, they're just having a very rough time, and they're just backsliding, and they're, they're just getting involved in some unfortunate patterns. But as it goes on, more and more, you begin to have more and more doubts and you're worried for this person and and finally it comes down to it where the life that they are living in and embracing and chasing headlong after, you have no choice but to think this is inconsistent with a true Christian. What is the church's responsibility toward a member who is living in persistent and unrepentant sin? What are we to do when this happens? Well, we saw last week that Paul instructs earlier in this chapter that the church is to protect its purity and defend the honor of God's holiness by purging out sin from the body. By purging it out. The final step of this process after Confrontation has occurred after repentance has been urged is to remove from the church those who persist in their sins while maintaining their profession. We saw that last week. But now as we come to the end of this chapter, Paul will answer a follow-up question for us. And that follow-up question is this. What should our disposition be as a church and as individuals towards those who have been put out? That's a very practical question that we have to wrestle with. Much of this also applies broadly to anyone who would make an uncredible profession of faith. Okay, So, the, the one that we know on the job site, or the one perhaps that is that distant relative that we see several times a year. Some of this will apply there as well. How are we to interact with those who make a profession and and who would claim to be Christians themselves, but live this life that is all too inconsistent to be believed. But Paul's specific emphasis are not just people outside of the church that make uncredible professions, but those who were once members, those who were among us, and who were put out as a result of unrepentant sin. How are we to interact with such people? Now, because of the youth of our church, we we don't have to uh, wrestle with this situation now. And I pray that we don't for a very long time. Pray that we never have to. But if it becomes incumbent upon us to be faithful, to exercise church discipline, we must know how we are to do such things. And we must not cave 
to the world or to the culture around us. We must be faithful to do what God requires of us. So what do we do with a brother who is falsely so-called? Let us answer these questions as we now dive into this text. I want you to see first in verses 9 and 10, the admonition. The admonition. This admonition will serve as the basis for the principle that Paul is about to lay out. And it is drawn from a previous correspondence that Paul had with the Corinthians. He says in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle. Now when he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle, he is talking about a previous letter that he sent to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. He's talking about a letter that he sent to them before he sent this letter. So what we find then is that 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. And uh, we'll, we'll see later on that there's actually a total of four letters that were sent to the Corinthians. Uh, you say, well, where are these other letters? Well, I don't know where they are. They were, they were not preserved. Uh, we don't have them. We don't have copies of them. Um, and this should not trouble us. It shouldn't trouble us that we don't have these letters. Because the, the, the truth is uh, that all of the apostles probably wrote many letters that we don't have and uh, preached many sermons that we don't have. There are plenty of things that they said and did that have not been preserved for us. But what we do have are all of the things produced by the apostles under the inspiration of God. And we have all that God could want his people to ever have or need in all ages. So um, our Bibles are not incomplete this morning when Paul references uh, an outside letter that he sent. Now in this earlier letter, Paul instructed the Corinthians, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. And he will go on in verse 10 to expand this list beyond just the sexually immoral to include all those who live in open sin and rebellion towards God. Paul says, don't keep company with such people. To keep company is to maintain close relationships with them. It is to form friendships with them. It is to develop lasting relationships. That is what it means to keep company. Now obviously, a logical question arises from this admonition. Perhaps it is one that you are asking yourself right now. What do you mean, Paul, that we're not to keep company with fornicators? We're not to keep company with with sinners. Are you saying, Paul, that we can't have relationships with lost people whatsoever? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Again, this is what I was saying. There are some things in this text that if we are not careful to understand what they mean, we could very quickly become in a, an extreme cult. And so Paul clears himself up in verse 10. He says in verse 10, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world... And then he'll list a number of sins. And we'll get into that list. But he says, not altogether with the fornicators of this world. For then must ye needs go out of the world. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm not telling you that you are not able to keep company with any lost person in the world. That would be preposterous. That would be impossible. Paul says as much when he says that the only way to do this would be to go out of the world. So if you want to avoid sinners altogether, you're either going to have to live in total isolation in a monastery somewhere all by yourself, or you're going to have to die and go to heaven. 
It's the only way to do that. We as Christians, we will know sinners. We will know lost people. We will have relationships with lost people. Our call is not to avoid sinners. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are called to go out and to reach sinners and to love sinners and to share the gospel with sinners. Now, yes, it is true that we are not to unequally yoke ourselves together with them. As Christians, your closest friends, your deepest relationships, your strongest commitments must be with other Christians. Must be. In fact, as we get into chapter 6 and 7, Paul will say that it is sin to unequally yoke ourselves together with unbelievers. And I think that goes beyond just marriage, though it certainly includes marriage. But we as Christians need to even be cautious about getting involved in business relationships with unbelievers and other things where we would put our own testimonies and our own spiritual well-being at jeopardy. And there are even times when unbelievers engage in such egregious sins that we must avoid them altogether for the sake of our own well-being. Yes, it's true. Jesus ate with sinners, um, but Jesus did not go down and hang out at the bar and uh, get down in their sin so that he was able to relate to them and so on and so forth as many often will, will preach it. So sometimes we do have to avoid certain things and certain people. But Christianity is not an exclusive club. Christianity is not a cult that you need some uh, secret passageway of entry into. No, we are to be the ones who are going out and who are proclaiming the message to one and to all, inviting them to come unto the Savior. If you don't know lost people, you won't be reaching them with the gospel. (laughs) So if this admonition not to company with sinners, doesn't apply to lost and unbelieving, unevangelized, unchurched to men and women. Then what is the application of this admonition? What does Paul mean? I wrote unto you not to company with fornicators. Well, look at verse 11. We'll see the application of this admonition. The application. He says, but now I have written unto you. So he's saying, you, you know what I wrote before. And now I'm going to build upon that in this letter, and I'm going to further explain and clarify. The phrase, but now, indicates that Paul will now teach this principle from a previous letter and how it applies in their current situation. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. And here is the the key to understanding this. If any man that is called a brother... B.A. There's the list. Herein we find the proper application of this principle of separation. It is not the unreached sinners of the world with whom we are not to keep company, but those that are brothers falsely so called. It's not those who live in sin. It's those who live in sin while simultaneously claiming the name of Christ that we are commanded to disassociate with. Now this is a hard pill to swallow. In a postmodern culture that values toleration and acceptance over and against the form of ob- any form of objective morality. I mean, we live in a culture where you will take heat 
for telling a biological man that he is not, in fact, a woman. So imagine the uproar that will result from telling a lost person that they are not, in fact, a Christian. It's flabbergasting to so many people. It's flabbergasting to so many Christians. They would, they would hear you say something like that and they would say, who do you think you are? I remember a story that Paul Washer told where he was visiting a church and he was sitting in the church's prayer meeting and they were talking about the prayer needs of the church. And one of the men shared a story about a church member. Okay? There's a church member that was neglecting the assembly. He was not attending services. They hadn't seen from him. They were unable to contact him. And so the pastor and some church members went out and visited him. And Paul Washer tells the story. And he says he's sitting there and they're talking about their, their prayer needs. And one guy says, well, pray for so-and-so. Uh, he hasn't been to church in a month and he's not taking our calls. And we, we went out to go to his house and visit him and check on him. And he said that if we came back out there, he was going to whip us, he was going to beat us to get off his property. And then somebody else spoke up and says, yeah, we need to pray for that brother. He, he's lost. We pray, need to pray the Lord will save him. And then someone else in the service interrupted and said, well, you can't say that. You don't know his heart. You, you, you can't judge him. And Paul Washer said he was sitting there and he felt his heart literally start racing in his chest and his foot began to tap. He said he had to get up and leave the service. What do you mean you can't say he's lost? He, he, you, you went out to visit him and he said, if you come back, I'm going to beat the pastor up. Well, but we don't know his heart. His heart is manifesting in the way that he lives his life. Some Christians would make that argument. We, we, we can't know the heart. It's true we can't know the heart. But we can see the effects of the heart. Did not our Lord say, a good tree bears forth good fruit? How do you know if a tree is healthy? It's producing fruit. But if you've got an apple tree in your backyard and it's not produced apples in years and it's, the leaves are brown and decaying, you should not think that's a healthy apple tree. When the Lord saves a sinner, He takes out their sinful heart of stone and He gives them a regenerate heart of flesh. And this new heart transforms the way that they live their lives because they now have new loves and new affections that constrain them to live for Christ. This is not to say that Christians don't sin. No, it is just to say that the newness in our life is really new. We are new creatures with new passions, new affections, New desires. And when there is no sign whatsoever of an outward change wrought by the grace of God, then we have no reason to think that that individual has ever experienced the grace of God in the first place. And contrary to popular belief, there are categories of people that we should not acknowledge as Christians. I, I, I know, I'm just, I'm just saying inflammatory thing after inflammatory thing, Right? How dare I? That's what Paul said. Remove them from among you. They're not a Christian. They're a false convert. They're an unbeliever. Why should we not acknowledge them as Christians? So that we can bolster up our own sense of superiority? So we can be better than them? 
God forbid. No, it's not about us at all in that sense. It's for the defense, first and foremost, of God's honor and God's glory. When we acquiesce that someone living in flagrant sin is truly a Christian, we are professing to the world that God does not really have the power to save his people from their sins. We are professing to the world that the grace of God is cheap and powerless and cannot actually transform the souls of men. You know, one of the most disgraceful crimes that can be committed is stolen valor. And I know we have veterans here this morning that will understand that. Stolen valor, pretending that you served when you've never actually served. And you've seen the videos of these idiots online that get some phony uniform, have some phony story, and they want the recognition of having served. They want people to look at them and to believe that they have served in the military. And they never did. They're false. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. Those who claim Christ, they have a uniform, so to speak. They have the, the Christian jargon, so to speak. They have a story. But they've never actually served him. And it's an affront to Christ's glory and honor to profess yourself to be one of his while maintaining and upholding a life of sin and darkness. What valor do we have as Christians? Is it anything we contribute? No, brothers and sisters, it's Christ who gives us our virtue and our purity and our holiness. And to claim that you have that when you don't is stolen valor committed against the triune God. So what are the things in this text that would place someone outside of the pale of Christianity if he or she was to persist unrepentantly in them? Now the sins mentioned in verses 10 and 11 are not exhaustive lists by any means, but they do cover a variety of sinful categories. Let's look at them very quickly. Verse 11, If any man that is called a brother be a, let's look at this, fornicator, those living in sexual immorality. There is perhaps no sin more dangerous than sexual sins. Last week we considered verses 1 through 8 and we defined fornication as any expression of sexuality outside the boundaries of marriage between one man and one wife. Paul says, avoid him if he claims to be a Christian but lives openly in sexual sin. Now that one we can understand. Why? Because it's, it's shameful to us. Sexual sin is shameful. We, we, we hide it. We don't tell people about it. We're secret about it. We don't want people to know about it. But then look at the next sin on the list. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous. Well, our first inclination is to think, well, surely coveting something is not as bad as committing fornication, right? God says no. It's just as damnable. It's just as dangerous. It's just as problematic. Fornication is a yucky sin, but greed is quite respectable. Men will boast over the sacrifices they have made to make money. Sacrificing their family. Sacrificing their church. Sacrificing uh, 
the, the things that God truly requires of them. But let me say this just as an aside. If all you have provided for your family is money, you have failed. Now you should care for your family. Amen. You should. But what my wife needs is not a raise at work for me. She needs a husband that is more like Christ. She needs a husband that will read the word of God with her and pray with her. And if I am chasing a dollar and, and have to sacrifice those things, I'm not doing her any good. Covetous. One who is not content with what God has given him. And he lives in envy of God's blessings upon others. God hates this sin. God hates this sin because when you commit this sin, you are accusing God of being unjust. You're saying, God, you should have given me this. You should have given me what you gave to someone else. What you must realize is that God should have given you death and hell. But by His grace, He has given you grace and mercy. Amen. He goes on. And what about an idolater? Now, we might think it odd that Paul would mention the sin of idolatry in the context of professing Christians. Obviously, if someone is professing faith in Christ, they're probably not professing faith in something else, necessarily. But what is idolatry? Is it not the placing of anything else before God? How many will say that God is most important in their life? But when their priorities are examined, when we consider how they spend their time, we find that God is second place or third place or really insignificant, somewhere towards the bottom of the list. They have time for God once they've done everything else. Well, if I don't have something else to do, I'll be at church. These people would say, well, Jesus works for me and, and he, he's my way to heaven, uh, but he's not the only way to heaven. Uh, he's not the only way to God and, you know, if you want to be a Muslim and, and you want to come to know God through Muhammad, go right ahead because all roads lead to Rome. That's idolatry. Amen. And yet there are Pastors who call themselves preachers of Christ that will say such things. Then there's a railer. What is, what is that? We'll have to look up our 1611 English dictionaries. We haven't seen this word before. Well, someone who is a railer is, is someone who is a, is a habitual slanderer, a gossip. That's what a railer is. Railing accusations. Have you ever heard that term? Railing accusations. Sometimes I hear people spout out so many lies and false accusations against God's people and I just wonder how their conscience can be so stone cold. And again, there are those who profess themselves to be Christians who are very guilty of this sin. And I don't think we realize the damage that it does to those who are under our influence. If you visit uh, 
if you if you're a, a church hopper and you're visiting all of these different churches and the only thing you can ever say is how bad they all are and you complain about the pastor and complain about his sermon and you rail against the way the members dress or you rail against the way they did this or you rail against the way they did that don't be surprised when your children want nothing to do with church when you are before your unbelieving friends and all you can do is talk about how Christians are hypocrites and Christians are this and Christians are that. Don't be surprised when your witness to them will be worthless. We will give an account for our railings and our backbitings. And then a drunkard. Uh, this, of course, is one who lives in drunkenness, who makes a, it a habit becoming intoxicated, who lives under the influence of substances. What is the sin at the, at the root of drunkenness? The problem is not the alcohol itself. I think so much preaching has been done on, on physical things. We, because it's easy to preach on physical things. I could stand here and I could tell you that liquid in a glass is evil and sinful and wicked and we can all hate this liquid in a glass. But the problem is not the alcohol. The problem is the lack of discipline the lack of self-control, the lack of temperance in the one who partakes. Just like the internet is not the reason for your lust problem. You are. Your heart is. And Paul says, someone who is a drunkard, someone who is living under the influence of substances, is not a Christian. They're not serving Christ. They can't because they're serving Alcohol and drugs and food and drink, whatever the case may be. And lastly, an extortioner. Now, when we hear this word extortioner, we think of a, a mob boss who tells the laundromat, if you don't pay us 1500 a week, you know we're going to come and bust your windows out. That's the, the crime of extortion. But an extortioner is simply one who makes money by deceitful gain, who advances in life through dishonest ways. We as Christians ought to be honest in all of our dealings. I work in a, I work in a uh, environment, in a, in a business, where you can make a lot of money if you're willing to be less than honest. It's, it's, a, it's very advantageous. And the company will send you to seminars where they will teach you how to lie so that you can make more money. But extortion, lying to people, deceiving people, tricking people to make a buck, is a sin. It's thievery. Thou shalt not steal, the Bible says. So Paul says, someone who lives in that, who boasts in that, brags about that, not a Christian. And again, this, this is not an exhaustive list of sins, but what these sins do represent are various areas, various domains. We could take any one of these sins and we could you know, draw a, a web, so to speak, and we could branch out to related sins that, that have deeper roots that are in common with one another that will represent various ways in which the law of God is violated and the gospel is defied. 
And again, this passage is not talking about those in the world who live in such sins. This passage is talking about uh, those who claim to be Christians who live openly in such sins. Understand this. This is very important what I'm about to say. This passage is not talking about Christians who commit these sins, who merely commit them. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us have committed these sins. As believers, all of us have committed these sins. Some of us, perhaps, have committed all of the sins on this list. Some of us have committed all of the sins on this list this month. Some of us have committed some of these sins this morning. Some of us may be currently struggling with a sin on this list. You read it. You know you're guilty of it. You're struggling with it. It's not who Paul is talking about. You can't afford to miss this point. There is an eternal difference between a Christian who commits a sin, knows it's a sin, repents of that sin, struggles against that sin, and one who claims to be a Christian and lives openly and unrepentantly in these sins. There is an eternal difference, quite literally an eternal difference in such people. Your struggles with sin are not an indication that you are lost and apostate and reprobate. Your struggles with sin are an encouragement. There is a desire within you to be holy, to not sin. When we, when we get concerned is when we are able to claim Christ and see no problem with our sin. See, the gospel is not just a transaction that forgives you of guilt. It is the power of God that saves your soul and transforms your life. And the same grace that justifies you is the grace that sanctifies you. And this grace is going to give you new desires and new affections. And if Christ becomes sweet to you, I guarantee you, your sins will become bitter. It's the difference between following around someone with a snapshot camera and following them around with a, with a video camera. Those of you who are true Christians, who, who truly belong to Christ, if I were to follow you around with a snapshot camera... I could take pictures of you throughout the week where you yell at the kids and you kick the dog and you're mean to your wife and you think things you shouldn't think on down the line. And then I could string up those pictures and I could say, you are not a Christian. Look at all of these things you did this week. But if I were to follow you around with a video camera, I would see someone who is not perfect. I would see someone who sins, but I would see someone who has a change in their life who truly desires to live for Christ. And when they fall, they get back up. And when they sin, they repent. And when they struggle, they push through it. And when they are tempted, they pray and they ask the Lord to help them because they want to be like their Lord Jesus Christ. So we must understand, though, that there may be Christians that commit these sins. There may be a Christian who commits the sin of fornication, but there's no such thing as a fornicating Christian. Does that make sense? There, there may be a, sin, a Christian who commits the sin of coveting, but there's no such thing as a covetous Christian. 
There may be a Christian who commits the sin of drunkenness, but there's no such thing as a drunk Christian. God sent His Son to die to make us holy. And if you are a Christian, you cannot go on living in a sin that Jesus died to save you from. You will meet those who are very open about their life of sin, all while claiming the name of Christ. Their Christianity only has the power to soothe their consciences and make them think everything's all right, make them think that they are going to heaven when they die, but one day they will stand before God and realize that they hold nothing but a lie. And if we truly love those people, we must not go along with their delusion. If we truly love those people, we must warn them. We must preach the gospel to them. If you were standing alongside a train track and you could see that this train track, the bridge collapses and and it falls down into a ravine and you see the train coming, are you just going to stand there on the side of the track and smile and wave as all of the people on that train plummet to their death and destruction? Or are you going to wave your arms and yell and scream and warn them and plead with them, get off the train, get off the train? But when you see someone claiming to be a Christian, who thinks that everything is going so well with them, but you know that they are heading to their own destruction. Sometimes it's painful to warn them. They don't want to hear it. If they wanted to hear it, they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in. But if you love them, and if you love Christ, you will tell them. We must not do anything that gives them a reason to believe that things are all right between them and God when they are not. And that includes allowing them to remain members of the church, allowing them to remain visibly united to Christ's people. And so Paul says this phrase in verse 11, one of the most difficult phrases in the New Testament, I believe, for us to grasp. With such an one, no, not to eat. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that we are not to even eat with such people. And at this point, the world will tell us that we are harsh, that we are cruel, that we are unloving, that that we're in a cult. But when they say that, they're not saying those things about us. They're saying those things about God. For it is God who has written the text that is in front of us. How are we to understand this instruction? First, we must see this as nothing more than the consistent application of church discipline. If we are to practice church discipline faithfully, we must practice it consistently. So, when Paul tells us not to eat with such people, yes, he has in mind at first the Lord's table. That that really is where we get the term excommunication. Um, Church membership is communion. To, To be a member of the church is to commune with that church. That is why also... We believe that the church does not have authority to offer the Lord's Supper, to offer the elements, to anyone who is not committed to and accountable to that body, that particular body. And the, the, the reason being is that if there is no accountability, you're, you're giving someone a very dangerous meal when you offer them the Lord's Supper. Because they can then go on into a life of flagrant sin and there is no recourse because there's no accountability to the body. Some will argue, though, that that's all he means in verse 11. With such a one, no, not to eat. Meaning, 
they, they can come to the services, they can come to the fellowships, they can still take part in all of the privileges of the church, they just can't have the elements. But that is not consistent. That is very inconsistent church discipline. The eating that is mentioned here in verse 11 is an expression of friendship and harmony. It is not about the physical act of partaking food into your mouth and digesting it with your stomach. That is not what Paul has in mind in a, in a very rigidly literal sense. He's not just saying, well, you, you can't eat with him. You can, as long as there's no food involved, spend as much time with him as you want. That's not what Paul's saying. No, not eating with them means not associating with them in such a way that validates their Christianity. That's what he means. He's not talking about an Amish shunning, okay? He's not saying that if someone is put out of the church and we run into them at Walmart, we have to cover our nose and yell unclean. But there must be a separation from them that makes a very clear distinction that they are no longer visibly recognized as Christians. There is a distinction between God's people and imposters. Why would, why would we invite to our table one whom God has said may not come to his table? So must we avoid them altogether? Must we deny them the basic necessities of life? If we see them out in public, are we to turn away and pretend as if we hadn't seen them? Not at all. That's not what Paul's saying. We are, in our interactions with them, to make it very clear that, brother, there is a, there is a hindrance between my relationship with you as an individual and your relationship with our church. And until there is true repentance and a true turning from sin and a restoration that takes place, that fellowship will never be healed. It cannot be healed. Now some might ask, well, how will they ever hear the gospel? I ask myself that when I read this text. How will they ever hear the gospel? But here's the sobering truth. They have heard the gospel. And they rejected it. And they persisted on in their sins. And so now God says, don't preach to them anymore. Turn them over to Satan. Don't even eat with them. That is a heavy passage. But brothers and sisters, this is the seriousness of faithfulness. And again, we might say, well, Jesus ate with sinners. He dined with the, the publicans and the sinners, prostitutes. Yes, he did. He did eat with sinners. But who were those sinners? They were lost unbelieving sinners that had never heard the gospel, that had never been around God's people, that had no light, that were living in darkness. And yes, he did. He ate with them and he loved them and he developed relationships with them and he was never brought into their sin and he never made them think that they were all right with God. But you will never find in the New Testament where Jesus ever ate with the Pharisees. You will never find in the New Testament where Jesus ever developed a friendship with or, or partook in commonality with someone who had apostatized from a profession of faith. Why? Because our Lord would not validate false religion. Now there's two caveats that I need to make. One is 
This is why church discipline must be carried out corporately. No single individual has the power to exercise church discipline. The pastor does not have the authority to exercise church discipline. It must be something that the members do as a body. Why is that? Well, because if you have church discipline, if you're, if you're disciplining someone and there's a large minority within the congregation that doesn't agree with that discipline for whatever reason, what do you think is going to happen if that discipline is carried out? Do you think it will be consistent? No, because there's not harmony in the body. Church discipline is a corporate affair. But secondly, where there is repentance, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. If you've got nothing, get this. Where there is repentance, there is always restoration. There is no such thing as being too far gone. I don't care what the sin is. I don't care how long they were involved in it. If someone is put out of the church because they are living in unrepentant sin, and they, are, they come back and they are broken and they are repentant, the church is to embrace them, to welcome them home, to rejoice when they return. I'm not saying we should put them up as pastor very next week. I'm not saying we shouldn't, as, as elders and pastors, is we shouldn't counsel them and still continue to, to facilitate that reconciliation. But we as church members better not look at them as if they are second-class church members. Because but for the grace of God, there go we. You say, well, they come back and they're church members and six months later they're disciplined again. And they're removed again. And three months later, they come back again. What do we do? We receive them again. We receive them again. Jesus said, I said unto you, don't forgive your brother seven times, but 70 times seven. In the context of church discipline. How many times have you gone to the Lord to repent of the same sin? Has he ever turned you away? Has he ever said, That's, this is the last time I'm going to accept your repentance over this sin. If you commit it again, there's no hope for you. See, that's the purpose of church discipline. To bring them to an end of themselves. To cause them to see the reality of their condition. In fact, removal from the church is never an option when there is repentance present. No one is ever removed from their own uh, against their own will. We're talking about someone who persists in sin. Who there's no struggle there. They're open about it. They're defiant in it. They're boasting in it. They're puffed up in their sin. Yes, this is a hard principle, but we must take it seriously. We must take the Bible seriously. And then it, let's close now with verses 12 and 13, the argumentation. The argumentation. A logical question that arises from Paul's teaching is this. Why are we free to interact with sinners outside of the church in ways that we aren't free to interact with false converts who have been removed from the church? If we were to do a hypothetical survey, let's say we, we sent it out to 100 churches and we asked them the question, um, are, are we supposed to judge our fellow church members? What, what do you think the answers would be? Yes or no? Well, most people would probably say, no, of course not. There's no judgment here. Well, what does Paul say in verse 12? He says, 
For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? So it's actually the opposite. It, it is the world that we are not to judge. Why are we not to judge them? Because they don't know any better. We're not to be surprised when lost people act like lost people. And so if you, if you are burdened for your alcoholic co-worker that's living with his girlfriend and you want to have an opportunity to share the gospel with that guy and you say, hey, come over Friday night. My wife's making stew and we can sit around and chat. You're free to do so because it's under the pretense that you are trying to reach this person with the gospel of Christ. But what you cannot do is to the church member that decided he was going to start living with his girlfriend and start living a life of drunkenness. And so he was put out of the church and he is, he is not in communion with the church. What you cannot do is say, hey, hey man, I know that, that, that they put you out and there are a bunch of you know, judgmental hypocrites down there. Um, you come on over Friday night. We're still, we're still buds. Why? Why? Well, because in the former case, there is no deception that you're playing into. Uh, your lost co-worker knows he's lost. He knows he's not a Christian. He knows you are. And, and you're telling him, come on over. I'm going to tell you about my Jesus that I serve. But when we refuse to obey the command of verse 11 with those who have been put out of the church, we are playing into that deception. We're not helping them. We're subverting the discipline of the church. We are undermining what God is seeking to do through His church for the ultimate salvation of that individual. Think about it like this. If your family has a set rule, no cookies after 9 o'clock, any child who sneaks a cookie after 9 o'clock receives a spanking. And Junior marches out of his room down to the kitchen and he's in the process of taking that cookie out of the cookie jar and right as it touches his lips, Dad sees him. Well, Junior needs to be disciplined. He, he stole a cookie. And the discipline that Dad will inflict upon him is not because he hates Junior, but because he loves Junior, and it's not very healthy for Junior to be stealing cookies. Well, imagine if Junior then runs to Mom and says, Mom, um, yeah, I took the cookie, but I, you know, I don't want a spanking. I don't, I don't want to heed the discipline of this family. And Mom said, that's all right. You know, Dad's just, he's just really strict. He's just, he's just really rough. Here, here, it's okay. Yeah, you shouldn't have done it, but you understand the problem that would, would happen in that family? It's the same thing in God's family, in the church. And I know plenty of mothers who say, I can't stand it when our husband has to discipline the kids. I hate having to, to see it, and it's uncomfortable, but I know it's for the best. Sometimes church discipline is like that. We don't enjoy it. We don't, in, we don't enjoy having to deal with sin in the membership of the church. But if we truly love one another, if we truly desire to see one another serve Christ, we must abide the discipline of the church. When we join a church, we are agreeing to heed the discipline of that church. And again, I've said this before, discipline is not always a bad thing, it's a good thing. Discipline is what trains us and what forms us and what instructs us and teaches us. 
So Paul says, verse 13, but them that are without, God judgeth. We don't go out into the world judging and ridiculing and chastising. That's God's job. We are to go out and preach the gospel. We are to go out and share the truth of Jesus Christ. We are not to go out and expect lost people to behave like Christians. That should not shock us. But what should shock us is when those who profess to be Christians, church members even, behave like lost people. May we never be too zealous to enact church discipline. It must always be a last resort. It must be something that only occurs after prolonged periods of prayer and pleading. And when the, where there is repentance, church discipline has succeeded and has done its job. But may we also not be too reluctant. When, indeed, a situation arises where the church must step in and must, must say, we cannot allow this uh, sin to persist in our body, we must, we must not be reluctant for the purity of Christ, because we love Him, because He loves us. May God give us faithfulness. May God give us faithfulness. Well, we have finished chapter 5. And uh, we have finished a text that is very difficult and hard for us to, to grasp. But may we be encouraged by the gospel. That God gives us church discipline because he loves us. And because he desires for us to be pure even as he is pure. He desires to see us presented unto him on that glorious day as a spotless bride without any blemish or any spot. May we endeavor to be that until he returns. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us this morning. I thank you for giving me the ability to handle this passage, though I'm sure much more could have been said, and I'm sure it could have been better explained. Lord, I believe that you have indeed met with us and used your word to teach us and to instruct us this morning. May you make us faithful. May you keep us faithful. May we grow in our love towards Christ and our love towards one another. May we help each other to grow in godliness all the more. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen.